Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series, along with Dr. Terry Davidson, director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University, and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. I'm very pleased to introduce today my longtime colleague, Louis Grossman, who is a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, where he specializes in food and drug law, among other subjects. He's also a PhD legal historian, and he's just published a fascinating new book on freedom in medical decisions, which is called Choose Your Own Medicine, and is with Oxford University Press. That's not gonna be the primary subject of this podcast episode, but I'm sure some of its themes will come up as we talk to Lewis about regulation in the area of food and drug law. He will be speaking with Dr. Terry Davidson, who presented in our last episode, his research on obesity and its effects on the brain. And before we start, we also want to disclose that Lewis has an of counsel position at the law firm of Covington and Burling, which is a leading law firm practicing in the area of food and drug law. So hi, Lewis, we're so excited to have you here. And we wanted to invite you here to talk primarily about Dr. Davidson's work on neuroscience and diet, though I'm sure we're going to have a much more wide ranging discussion than that. So maybe we can start with Terry summarizing some of the key findings of his work as they relate, especially to policy questions. We wanna try to explore that intersection between his neuroscience work and how to think about connections between health science, policy, and law. Terry, do you wanna start us off? Sure, yeah, I first uh, I wanna say that um, uh, welcome, Lewis. I'm very interested in the kind of uh, uh, work you do, and um, I've had a chance to look at your book. Haven't been all the way through it, but uh, I'm planning on doing that. I think it's a very interesting book. Um, with respect to my own research, I, I want to uh, point out that what I really want to talk about is my my work is an example of uh, a, a lot of work that's going on that um, is health related, has health implications, but it's kind of basic science w- work. And so one of the things that I was always interested in is how basic science uh, will get translated, how it can uh, have impact outside of academia. Quite often, scientists tend to talk to themselves a lot. But in order to really have an impact in terms of disease, uh, we have to be able to reach people outside. And uh, I, you're, you're one of the folks, I think, who uh, knows something about that. Uh, my own work is uh, focused on uh, the effects of diet uh, on brain, in particular areas of the brain that have been involved in memory. And, and, and I think uh, some years ago, we discovered that uh, when we put uh, rats on a diet that was high in fat and sugar, 
And we tried to make it approximate what is known as the Western diet, which is prevailing in Western societies. It, it got started here in the United States, and now it's uh, uh, going all, all over the world. Uh, one of the things we saw is that animals, of course, like people, get uh, gain weight on that diet, but they also start showing uh, memory impairments. And one thing we also found that was quite interesting is they we have special tests to, to assess how the animals can use their internal states, like their hunger states, their satiety states, how they're able to detect and, detect and use them. And what we found is that the animals were impaired that ate these diets. Uh, they were maintained in this kind of diet. They were impaired in using those, those uh, cues, which made it more difficult than for them to control their intake because we, the idea is we rely on, say, signals of satiation to tell us when to stop eating. Uh, these guys were not able to use those cues as, as well. Um, it turns out humans uh, are, show the same kind of thing if they have damage to the area that we're studying. And, uh, and then we have other, uh, since we began this work, um, other laboratories and, uh, have, have uh, advanced it even further. And uh, we have now uh, colleagues in Australia and other places that are examining the implications of the work uh, uh, for humans as well. And so uh, that's just a little bit of the background of what we do. I'm happy to answer any more questions you have. But mostly I'm, I'm interested in... So if, if we have a, a, a set of findings, and I, and I think that these findings, um, I should say if, if an animal can't uh, determine whether it's hungry or not, they tend to overeat. And so it seems to me it would have implications for, for human health and well, well-being. Um, how does that kind of stuff get translated? Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or not. Well, hi. So thank you for having me, by the way. How does it get translated? So... Um, we're talking about uh, one of the core areas of FDA responsibility, which is food regulation. Um, and it regulates both food labeling and food safety, um, which uh, we will uh, have something to talk about. We, we will be able to talk about both today, I'm sure. Um, but um, when you're talking about um, a particular uh, widely available macronutrient like sugar or fat, um, there's always going to be a big presumption from a regulatory perspective against uh, FDA uh, regulation of that from, from the perspective of, of banning or limiting it as opposed to labeling it. Um, and the general structure, just for our listeners, is that any component of food uh, is potentially something called a food additive. And if it is a food additive, then it needs FDA uh, approval in order to be in the food supply. But there is an enormous exception that swallows up the rule called generally recognized as safe. And all of the big uh, sugar, fat, salt uh, things, as well as other basic ingredients like wheat and rye and rice and everything are, are generally presumed to be generally recognized as safe. And to add to that, there is an added presumption of safety uh, and presumption may not be the right word, but it is easier to demonstrate that you are generally recognized as safe if you are a substance that was uh, common in the food supply before 1958, 
which was the year that the FDA, uh, that Congress passed the food additives amendments. So therefore, uh, the starting point for things like sugar and fat are that they are generally recognized as safe. Um, so the, the one uh, big uh, example in recent years of a substance like this actually being removed from the market was trans fats, uh, which FDA declared to be not generally recognized as safe uh, some years ago. And we can talk a lot about that because it's a very interesting story of regulation where first they took a labeling approach and then uh, went to the additional step of actually banning uh, trans fat uh, from, uh, from the food uh, supply. So uh, with respect to trans fat, I, um, I, if I remember right, it was supposed to be something that was healthy for us and then uh, turned out not so healthy. Um, and so they, they decided it was not safe. Um, how, who makes the decision? And, and about, let me say, but yeah. let me let me say, by the way, that uh, the number of times that I ate margarine in the nineteen seventies <laughs> because my mother said it was safer than uh, or healthier than butter, um, I just regret those years tremendously right now. And there's a lot of people who are in the same boat uh, as you, yeah. Uh, so um, I, I guess this notion of safety. Um, for, I mean, uh, for many, many years, people have known that uh, you know, excess sugar and fats have harmful effects uh, on uh, physically, heart disease, and, and uh, a number of different cancers are associated with these kinds of things. How does this, how does this translate to being safe? Uh, is it that the data are not uh, convincing enough, or is it uh, there's something else going on? Well, in general, when the FDA is uh, assessing the safety of a food, animal studies are, uh, or a food substance or food additive, uh, animal studies are incredibly important to that. Um, but they tend to be focusing, uh, when, first of all, when it comes to cancer, we're talking about a completely different world because there's something called the Delaney Clause, which says that FDA should not approve for use any food substance that has been shown to cause cancer in man or other animals. And read broadly, that, would, that, that has certainly kept many uh, synthetic substances and other substances out of the diet. Um, but if that were applied to common foodstuffs, uh, that would be a revolutionary thing and obviously a very controversial thing because there are many common foodstuffs that are associated with cancer. Um, when it comes to other types of harm, uh, then the, the, um, the general legal standard is reasonable certainty of no harm. And FDA is much better and much more willing at assessing more acute safety issues than chronic safety issues when it is determining whether or not components of food uh, should be permitted in the food supply. Um, and so they um, will uh, do rodent studies and, and, uh, and larger mammal studies and find the, uh, 
you know, the hot, highest uh, no, uh, no effect dose and, and so forth. Um, but uh, translating, uh, and you can educate me on this, uh, translating toxicity from an animal study to a human is one thing. Translating uh, lifelong risks of chronic disease uh, from a rodent study to a human study seems to me, although I could be corrected, a much more challenging uh, uh, thing to do. Oh, it is much more challenging. Uh, so for example, in rodent studies, we can control the diet of, a, of an animal to be, you know, one group is going to be getting a placebo and the other group is not. You don't have experiments like that, nor should we, with, with humans, where we perhaps uh, expose a human to a risky diet and then compare what those effects are to someone who's not on that diet. So most of the data with humans is correlational. Um, and I think it, you know, correlation is not causation. And the cigarette industry had, you know, uh, banked on that for many, many years. Uh, so you're right, it, it is more difficult However, the correlations are very strong, and um, and it, the types of pathophysiology that are produced by certain kinds of diets uh, are uh, um, uh, it's pretty clear. The, I guess the problem is it's not the it, it's perhaps it's the quantity <laughs> that we eat. so you know they they say virtualize between two extremes, and that may be true with sugar and and, and with fat. At the same time, though, um, high fat, high sugar products are being marketed uh, like like crazy. And uh, so that's a, that's an issue that's also of concern because those are the, the more unhealthy types of foods are the ones that seem to be being pushed on a lot of people. Um, and Terry, if I can just clarify one yeah, thing, because sure. the discussion we've had so far may lead listeners to conclude that the presence or absence of a food ingredient in the food supply is an on off switch. Yeah. When in fact, FDA, whether you're talking about its food additive approval process or its grass process, has a much more nuanced level of power. It can control quantities, it can control uh, host foods, and it does those things all the time. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. Lewis, I was thinking about that too, because I don't think Terry's research suggests in any way that sugar and fat should be banned altogether as food substances. It seems to me that it would be impossible to do that and it wouldn't be the best outcome anyway. But how could the FDA regulate based on findings like Dr. Davidson's that too much of these substances is a very bad thing? So um, certainly, I mean, FDA is, an, is a public education agency as well as a regulatory agency. so. Let's start with that. Um, but the let's imagine that the science became indisputable. Uh, um, what could FDA do? Well, let's go back to that. In addition to education, FDA regulates labeling and FDA regulates safety of food. And um, I imagine that the first uh, uh, approach it would take would be um, a labeling approach. Uh, that's what it did with trans fat when it started to require that trans fat be uh, declared on the nutrition facts label. And what you saw when that was um, mandated is dropping levels of hydrogenated fats in the American food supply 
to the point when they ultimately um, said that trans fat is not generally recognized as safe. Uh, it was not such a shock to the um, uh, system, uh, the food system as a whole and the industrial system as um, it otherwise would have been. Now let's take sugars. Um, there has been action taken with respect to added sugars. A few years ago, FDA revised its regulations regarding the nutrition facts label and uh, required the uh, declaration of the amount of added sugars in uh, processed foods. Um, and I say processed foods because, um, uh, you know, raw uh, seafood and, and raw fruits and vegetables uh, aren't going to have added sugar and they don't have labels stuck to them anyway. Um, and I think it's too early to talk about whether that's having a practical effect on the amount of sugar that's being put into American food. I think that it went fully into effect for large food producers in 2020 and small food producers in 2021. Um, uh, I'm not positive about those dates, but will it have an impact on uh, on the composition of American food. Now, when it came to trans fat, um, the food manufacturers had to come up with alternative uh, ways to make the foodstuffs that people want, and they did that. Indeed, margarine is obviously still on the market, and it has zero uh, trans fats in it, as last time I checked the label. Um, and uh, of course, people are still going to want sweet things and people are still going to want fatty things. And so then the question turns into what are you going to substitute the sugar with? And one thing you can substitute with it with um, potentially is uh, um, is artificial sweeteners of various kinds or uh, manipulated sugar. Um, and there's all kinds of food research going on. And I'd be interested, um, Terry, based on your research, what are your views on artificial sweeteners? You were implying, it seemed to me, that the labeling strategies, um, well, they were having some positive effect. And, I, and it's more than a labeling strategy for trans fat, right? It was kind of a prohibition. Um, given no, that- Well, to be, to be clear, <laughs> it started as a labeling strategy and then uh, the industry responded to that labeling strategy by reformulating its foods and pushed the levels of trans fats down near zero. And then uh, when they did uh, say that trans fats were not generally recognized as safe, uh, it wasn't as dramatic a intervention as it would have been if they'd started with that. Now with added sugars, uh, FDA, um, several years ago, started requiring the declaration of added sugars on uh, labels. Now, I assume that FDA's goal there is both to inform consumers uh, about the amount of added sugar and combined with education, uh, encourage consumers to avoid foods with too much added sugar. But I assume that FDA also hopes that this uh, declaration will have an effect on um, how American food producers uh, manufacture their food and, and how much sugar is in it. And it's simply too early to tell whether it will have that effect or not. 
there are some people then that would be kind of skeptical about the effectiveness of education campaigns. Right. And, you know, I mean, so this steers us to the big profound question that we should talk about, which is uh, the limits of law um, yeah. in some areas and whether or not you as a scientist or me as a lawyer and historian think uh, that there is anything that the law can do uh, in this area. And, you know, there have been very successful uh, public health campaigns in history. Take seatbelts. Uh, nobody used them. Uh, then there was education. Then there were mandates. And now most people use them. Uh, cigarettes are another story where you're actually talking about an addictive substance. Um, and yet the amount of cigarette use in this country uh, is, uh, I believe, much lower than it used to be. I wonder whether, Terry, you think that the cigarette story uh, has any lessons for this story. So one of the things I, I remember, Lewis, is that when I was younger, I, I smoked back uh, a long, long time ago. I've been, I quit smoking many, many years ago. But I remember paying 25 cents a pack for cigarettes. Um, I don't know what they cost today, but I believe they're in the four, three or $4 range, if not more. And I believe a lot of that is taxes. And uh, and so one reason I think uh, that you might be able to, uh, how should I say, uh, reduce the likelihood that people will start and reduce the likelihood that they'll continue is by making it more costly for them. Um, and so that would seem to be a legal thing, right? Yes, I mean, obviously tax policy is a legal thing. Um, and, you know, but you also have to take into account political reality. And uh, any, you know, in, in all likelihood, uh, any taxes like that would be imposed at the municipal or state level. Um, and I think we can agree that there's many states in the country where if there was any kind of tax that could be uh, labeled by opponents uh, or characterized by opponents as a, uh, you know, uh, a, a tax on food you like, <laughs> Um, it's going to have a big uphill climb to, to get through any state legislature, uh, not every state legislature, but any. I will mention that, you know, New York City uh, did have a, uh, a ban at one point on uh, uh, beverages uh, of more than so, sugary beverages, soda and other sugary beverages of more than 16 ounces. And that ended up getting overturned. Interestingly, it was not overturned on any constitutional principle, but on an administrative law principle, whether or not uh, it was the New York court that said that under New York law uh, that uh, Mayor Bloomberg didn't have the authority to do it. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, so your book uh, talks a lot about medical liberty and with respect to vaccinations and drugs and so on. Um, I guess the, it applied to foods as well. Diet liberty. Yes, no. <laughs> yeah. there, 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 there is a long tradition of food libertarianism in this country. Um, and also, of course, um, there's that in between uh, territory, which is dietary supplements. And there is a very long history of activism resisting regulation of dietary supplements. Um, so, um, but, you know, that being said, you know, when it came to cigarettes, you know, maybe tax policy had something to do with it. 
But I think just a generalized understanding that smoking uh, was bad for you also uh, had something to do with it, probably a large part to do with it. And so, again, looking at the three-pronged approach, education, labeling, which actually is partly education, and uh, the regulation of the substance of foods, um, I, I, if, if you take the added sugar uh, situation, um, I think that um, we're having a combination of uh, education and, uh, and labeling now. And uh, the, uh, I think I may have said this before, but the sugar, uh, added sugar declaration is just going into effect now. And so we don't know yet whether it will have an effect on how uh, makers of food in America uh, compose their foods. In the trans fat situation, it had an effect. It did not have an effect here. And Terry, I want to raise one other thing if we're just talking about uh, common behaviors. When I was a little kid in the early 1970s, there was a story in the New York Times, uh, or I, I mean, I have to assume because that's what my parents read, uh, saying that sugar cereals um, were really bad for you. It was around 1971, 72. From that day on, a sugar cereal never crossed the transom of my house. So no more Frosted Flakes. So how did my house work for breakfast? Corn flakes with a bowl of sugar and a spoon and me dumping sugar all over the cornflakes. <laughs> no, I think that's probably repeated in a lot of places. <laughs> yeah. I have a question. And so, you know, with respect to FDA, there's been a lot of, um, I don't know if it's scuttlebutt or conspiracy or whatever, but a lot of concern that the pharmaceutical industry has too much say over decisions uh, that the FDA makes. Um, should there be concerns about the food in industry's uh, influence on the FDA or, or not? So I always um, come around to really defending the integrity of the career scientists and regulators at FDA. This is just based on, on instinct and having met these people uh, more than anything else. But if the food industry has what might be deemed to be a uh, over large uh, uh, impact on FDA regulation, um, I, I don't think the one thing I want to do is I don't think it has anything to do with the integrity of the career scientists and regulators at FDA um, for the most part. Uh, so then you have to ask questions like, um, well, is there uh, an uh, oversized uh, influence at the level of um, you know, the, the leadership of FDA, political leadership of FDA? And, you know, I have a hard time believing that um, because um, there's never, you know, the, the commissioners have always been uh, medical professionals, uh, MDs, uh, a veterinarian in one instance, um, uh, with no particular ties to the food industry. So then you have to look at the leadership of the Center for Food uh, Science and Nutrition. And if you just... If you just look at the people who have led that agency, that uh, division, uh, 
again, I think if we're talking about industry influence, what I want to get out of the way right from the start is there's, that there's some kind of corrupt pay for play going on at the FDA. It would be a much more uh, indirect cultural uh, influence uh, than anything else. Um, so uh, some people think that there's too much uh, um, rotation between industry and regulators uh, and that regulators uh, decisions may be unconsciously or in some instances consciously affected by the fact that they might be able to have a job in the food industry after they work for the government. Um, there's also, um, uh, you know, various other um, subtle components, like when you put together a, um, uh, a committee uh, of experts at FDA, and this sometimes happens in the food area, um, it is almost impossible to find experts in the food and nutrition area that don't have some kind of arguable conflict uh, in terms of having gotten uh, um, industry funding for a study or been a consultant for industry. Um, so, so that's another thing that some people focus on. Uh, and there, you know, there are conflict of interest rules, uh, but there's also a waiver uh, procedure. And that waiver procedure often has to be used simply in order to staff um, such committees. I will say, by the way, that those committees are not nearly as important in the food area as in uh, the, the drug area. But finally, there's Congress. And the FDA can't do anything that uh, Congress won't let it do. And so, for example, in the 1970s, FDA, um, following the law as it was written, uh, banned saccharin, um, artificial sugar. And Congress stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. Um, that's also happened uh, with respect to an attempt to more aggressively regulate dietary supplements uh, in the early 1990s. And so when it comes to dramatic regulation, FDA is operating in an environment where it knows that Congress can come in and put a stop to anything that it wants to. Well, that uh, thank you for that answer. It's very uh, it's complete and, and reassuring. Um, it, you, you brought up the saccharin notion um, so one way that, the, that I think the food industry can have an impact on science is, um, you know, they ha tend to have their own scientists. And, and if you remember the Institute, I think there was a tobacco Institute or something that was funded by the tobacco industry that had their own scientists. And typically what these folks tend to do, I think, is they emphasize counter research or they try to identify problems that are in the research that may go against their interests. Um, I, we had a study that, uh, as a matter of fact, that's been replicated, uh, where saccharin and uh, would uh, actually lead to uh, animals' ability. Um, it would reduce their ability to detect real sugars or the calories, anticipate the calories in real sugars if they had a lot of exposure to saccharin. And nobody eats just saccharin. They, of course, we all eat sugars. And this generated not anything governmental, but we ended up like uh, uh, in the sites of the industry's um, 
PR uh, apparatus, and that apparatus is fairly large, and scientists tend not to have such a large apparatus. So um, the reason I'm mentioning this is that the industry has other ways, uh, of course, of making it, um, uh, 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 assuring their interests, let me put it that way. So it seems to me that there's not anything notorious going on, but that when you have some interests that have a lot of funding and a lot of resources, their voices and ability to bring considerations to the attention of regulators is very strong compared to those who don't have all of those resources. And it ends up being sort of an uneven playing field where certain ideas and certain considerations get a lot more play than others. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. And I'm not naive. I know that industry has a lot of power. It certainly has a tremendous amount of power over uh, Congress. Uh, and then it has a, uh, a lot of uh, indirect power and sometimes direct power um, over um, regulatory decision making. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to deny that. But I will also say that um, there are some very, very effective uh, public interest organizations like Center for Science and the Public Interest, which can have a tremendous impact on food regulation. For example, uh, there was a fake fat called Olestra, which you may yes. remember, oh, which sure. uh, that, that was a Procter & Gamble product. It turned out to be an enormous bust. Um, and I don't even think it's available um, except as an industrial lubricant in, in the United <laughs> States today. Um, but, um, you know, the Center for Science and Public Interest um, also has a, a megaphone and also has an ability to talk to FDA. And in that situation, uh, they required that a, a label regarding, uh, you know, gastrointestinal effects uh, be put right on the uh, the package of any food containing Olestra. Um, and so um, I think that there is a, um, a, a somewhat healthy uh, debate that goes on um, at the level of the Food and Drug Administration. But um, there is no doubt that the law has been written in a way that in certain ways favors industry. So for example, the entire generally recognized as safe um, system um, allows, uh, for example, uh, self-declarations of generally recognized as safe status, um, in which case uh, FDA doesn't even necessarily know that the food is or the food substance is out there. Now, Congress could uh, rewrite the law and require some kind of pre-market notification or approval for the grass process, but it hasn't done so. And I don't think it's going to do so. Um, now, there are ways for citizens to get involved in the process. So, for example, uh, the Center for Science and the Public Interest has filed a, a petition uh, at FDA um, asking it to declare, uh, I'm not aware of the complete details of this, but to declare added sugars above a certain amount is not generally recognized as safe. Um, the problem is that FDA has no, there's no compulsion for FDA to, to act on that petition whatsoever. So you are suggesting that if citizens organize, things might get better, but I doubt that that's something that will happen 
since the interests are too diffuse, perhaps? Right, right. And, you know, and, and, and some people argue that, uh, you know, another uh, source of industry power is the fact that uh, they get to fund um, so much of the research that's actually done uh, in this area. And, you know, maybe, Terry, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, I, I, so, the, so the atmosphere of industry funding in which you work and the ability of colleagues of yours to maintain their scientific integrity no matter where the money is coming from. So um, actually, I can speak a little bit to that. Uh, I know that there are a number of universities that will have uh, corporate sponsor panels or groups. And, um, and so they may have a number of different uh, food industry representatives, uh, various companies that will pay money uh, to the, uh, say, a particular department, maybe a nutrition department, for example, uh, to support their research. And the idea is, is there's no strings attached. And, uh, and clearly, I don't think many departments would, no one, I hope, would, would take money uh, with the notion that you have to produce a particular kind of outcome. I think the danger is, and, and a lot of my colleagues, um, so personally, uh, I was once uh, offered help from a major company and um, I wouldn't be able to take it. I couldn't take it, even though there were so-called no strings attached because it's it's kind of like I, I've seen where if a, if a researcher produces data that go against the country, company's interest, the company can simply stop the funding. And what that means is, is that you, you have people on your staff, you have people uh, who are relying on that money. Now, I don't think that this is going to make anyone change any data, but I think it, it's a pressure. It's a pressure that's put on uh, uh, scientists who are taking money from uh, uh, industry um, that it, it's, it's going to impact more than their data. And so that kind of pressure, I think um, it, it just makes the comp situation more complicated. And uh, so a lot of a lot of people I know, some people live off of it. Other people uh, will not t touch it at all. We'll, we'll, if we need to have funding, we'll go through National Institutes of Health or or um, NA, uh, NSF or a National Science Foundation or other uh, other kind of independent foundations. Um, yeah. So I, I think it. Uh, uh, they, there's, there's certainly ways that they can have influence on uh, knowledge producers. And when money comes involved, the, the fact that you might lose it, I think, could, it could have an effect uh, that may make, how should I say, uh, certain types of uh, data. Maybe it gets held longer or, or maybe it gets looked at more carefully other than um, uh, uh, if the money wasn't involved. But, uh, I'll add one but other Terry, thing. Would you yeah. say, Terry, would you say that there's enough public funding of food nutrition research so that you have a uh, a rich overall ecosystem rather than one that's completely biased in one direction? Well, I won't say it's completely biased in one direction, but you know, if you ask a researcher if there's enough money uh, from NIH or whatever, um, typically the answer is no. It's very, very competitive. Um, so it's in many of the agencies, uh, less than 10%. Or uh, in some cases, uh, maybe a little higher than that, maybe 15%. But very, a small percentage of the grants are actually getting funded. And some of those grants, of course, um, are going to be uh, grants on big, very big ticket items. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's very competitive for funding. And so I think that makes uh, uh, outside funding, funding from uh, industry uh, more attractive. When it came to trans fat 
Um, what happened is that the food industry came up with different recipes for their food, basically. Um, as I understand it, the, uh, the creamy filling in Oreo used to be Crisco and sugar. Um, we still have Oreos. We still have roughly the same, you know, tasting thing. But now they use some kind of non-hydrogenated fat to do it. If we were to, uh, by fiat, restrict the amount of fat and or sugar in the food supply, um, the food industry, which is obviously profit motivated, will do everything it can to have people continue to eat and enjoy its products. And that may mean in a highly technological uh, food world, artificial fats and artificial sweeteners. And there's all kinds of stuff going on in that area. There's a, a new fat, I forget what it's called, which is apparently a, a lestra without its side effects. And there are people doing all kinds of, you know, uh, work at the molecular level on sugar. Um, and uh, this would be the almost inevitable response to it. And I'm wondering what, what you feel about that likely response. Well, um, so I, I'm speculating here, uh, at least in part, and that is that I think any time, so we have, a, we have a biological system that's not used to artificial kinds of things. This is not, you know, it's not saying that everything artificial is bad. However, um, typically, um, so I, I mentioned uh, artificial sweeteners. Uh, I think there's quite a bit of data indicating that artificial sweeteners can kind of trick this, the body into uh, not being able to uh, assess properly the amount of real sugar or the amount of calories that are in something sweet. And without that kind of information, uh, it could be, and there's some evidence that indicate this, that uh, what happens is, is that we tend to overeat calories because we're not getting the type of signals that would tell us, oh, we're, we're you know, typically if we get a lot of exposure to something sweet with no calories, it makes us less likely to be able to detect calories in something that really is sweet that really has them. And so all I'm mentioning is, is that there are going to be um, counter reactions. And uh, I think it's very important then before we would mass distribute some type of, of, of substitutes for sugar that um, we understand what those reactions would be. And that, that will certainly take a lot of work. And you would say the same thing for fat, I assume. I mean, um, not the exact same, not the so, exact same science. But... Yes. So I do think that fats, uh, the most, uh, from what we can tell, the most dangerous types of fats are saturated fats. And so a substitution of saturated fats. And again, one of the things you mentioned before, and I, I tried to mention too, virtualize between two extremes. So it's not so much that let's cut, you're not going to cut fat out, as Susan said, we're not going to cut sugars out. Uh, you know, we have to eat something. But um, the idea is, is that can we reduce the content and can we make it so that people somehow help people reduce the content because people on their own are having a lot of difficulty. I will add that some of the work we do suggests that the brain's changing in ways that makes the ability to inhibit eating those kinds of things more difficult. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that there, the idea would be perhaps we could go to healthier fats. I don't know if there are such things as healthier sugars, um, but uh, certainly health, healthier fats. And then uh, perhaps uh, find ways that we could um, 
help people reduce overall intake. How about the problem of uh, possible uh, um, differential um, reaction of different people or populations to uh, different nutrients? Um, and so, for example, I, I see that salt isn't part of your uh, your research. Is that right? You're not doing. Yeah, I'm not uh, looking. Yeah, this is not yeah. an advocation of lots of salt, but that's just that we yeah. don't we don't study it. Yeah, right. But but you know, the last I checked, there 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 are some people that are salt sensitive and others that aren't salt sensitive. Um, and uh, we're entering an age of personalized medicine. I wonder if we're also entering an age of personalized diet control um, and that perhaps people within a few years will be taking uh, genetic, will be receiving genetic profiles of themselves and being told uh, that both with, with respect to satiation and health, um, that this is the type of diet you should be eating. Um, do, you, do you see a future like that? So I think that's very interesting. And, and, um... So it is the case that you know uh, I I can harp on saturated fats and I can harp on sugars, and there are some folks who aren't really responsive to that. So they won't they don't they can control their intake of those things. They don't you know there are different people. I, I say sometimes in my classes that um, you know someone can basically uh, eat all the uh, fats and sugars they want, and uh, and a lot of us will look at them with envy because they don't seem to gain weight. And yet other folks, if even thinking about it, seems to put weight on. So there's certainly differences there. It's got to be based, uh, certainly genetics are involved in this, and, and perhaps some uh, life experiences which impact on uh, how people uh, utilize the, uh, the food or their body utilizes the food. And I think it'd be really important then to try to understand those things. And what you're talking about there is kind of individualized. Now, again, there may be kind of general rules that can apply to broad swaths of people. And we may be able to categorize people in terms of their sensitivity, these kinds of things. But yeah, I, I actually think that what you're talking about there um, is very interesting kind of prospect uh, for, for science. Yes, I've always felt personally that I get a particularly high level of satiation from a type of food that it, it creates a regulatory problem. <laughs> because as we've seen in just during the pandemic, uh, there's a large group of Americans who aren't really willing to abide by uh, things that will help Americans at a population level um, if it will impact them negatively either physically or emotionally as individuals. And as soon as the science becomes clear, if it does become clear that some people react to saturated fat in a certain way and others react in a different way, it becomes all the more challenging for the government to say, we are going to limit saturated fat for everybody um, because then you'll have a group of people who can eat French fries all day um, and not have a negative effect, who will be furious at that. Um, so, well, it's the same thing, though. Um, I, they used to have advertisements on television with uh, for cigarettes, and they'd usually have somebody's 99-year-old granddad who'd been smoking camels without filters for, you know, 70 years. Um, so I, I, I do still think, I mean, I do believe there are differences, but uh, I do think there are going to be general effects too, that you could have a positive effect on the health of the population 
<clears throat> just as vaccines, they're not going to be effective or equally effective for everyone. But in general, they are very effective. And um, and for the most part of the majority of people, the great majority will benefit from them. So I think I think, again, I, there, we may be able to fine tune as you're talking about. And and that would be an ideal situation. But I don't know if we should be able we should wait until we're able to do that. I'm glad you brought right. that up. But I wanted to steer us towards other kinds of policy interventions that are short of outright prohibition. To go back to the cigarettes, for example, an intervention might be making certain products harder to reach, such as putting fatty or sugar-filled products in grocery stores on higher shelves or in the back of the store. In other words, moving them so that they're not the first thing you see. And I can think of other interventions as well, such as funding subsidies for farmers markets or for other kinds of fresh produce displays. Are there other sorts of interventions, such as using Cass Sunstein's nudge theory? Are there other creative ways of thinking about gentle interventions into human behavior that could have good public health consequences? So, I mean, I think uh, I'm not an expert on, on the science of nudge theory in the food area, but I think that it has had a, a widespread influence uh, and sometimes nudges can be labeling. So, for example, I know that FDA has been considering uh, for a long time some kind of front of package labeling. Uh, I think it was in Britain where they kind of had a green light, red light, yellow light system or something like that in place for a while. Um, so that's one kind of thing. Um, you know, some people point out that there are food deserts um, in uh, in the United States uh, in the sense of uh, neighborhoods, especially in the uh, disadvantaged parts of major cities where it's hard to get to a supermarket, but easy to get uh, to a McDonald's. Um, and I don't know how you nudge the supermarket industry into opening more supermarkets in those areas. Um, but even if you do put a supermarket in that area, I can walk out of a supermarket with Frosted Flakes and, you know, and Twizzlers. Um, and so what Susan is referring to are other nudges kind of within the supermarket. So. Uh, I know that Coke and Pepsi, uh, from what I've read at least, uh, trade off um, in supermarkets um, having that very prominent place at the head of each aisle uh, on a weekly or monthly basis. And I, I say this with caution because I don't know the details. Um, clearly, they think that shelf placement um, and product placement has an effect on what people buy. Now, this is a choice between Coke and Pepsi, not between soda and, you know, and uh, fruit juice or something. Um, so in theory, there could be nudges like that, um, but it's kind of outside my sphere of legal expertise. And um, I assume that there would be tremendous pushback to that kind of micro regulation of product placement in the supermarket. Another interesting general issue when it comes to obesity, and I'd love to talk about this more too, because it's to me a fascinating behavioral economics and regulatory problem, is serving size. Um, so FDA uh, in the same 
uh, regulations in which it amended the nutrition facts label to include added sugar, also did a systemic uh, um, uh, revision of serving sizes. Now, most Americans don't realize this, but the serving sizes that are uh, indicated on every food label that you buy are, are not a, an estimate or something by the company. They, they are dictated by FDA. And so, so for example, um, if you take a pint of ice cream, um, FDA decided that um, the old serving sizes correlated to studies that came out in the 1970s and that therefore they were out of date and that the serving sizes should be amended in order to reflect actual current eating patterns. And so uh, I'm, just, I'm just spitballing here, but let's imagine that a, you know, a pint of ice cream used to be uh, three servings, now it might be two servings. And the interesting question is, what effect is that gonna have on consumption patterns? Because one way to think about it is people will look at the label and they'll say, oh my God, a serving of this ice cream has this much saturated fat in it, that's horrific. But another possibility is somebody will look at the label and say, wow, I can eat half of this thing of ice cream and it's only one serving. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's always been curious to me, you know, well, not curious, fascinating to me as to which of those two impacts serving size re reform has. That's a very interesting question, yeah. Well, hopefully somebody will be studying that. I would certainly, certainly hope so, but you know, there was a very, very uh, systematic uh, revision of serving sizes upward just a couple of years ago. And I've always been concerned on a completely uneducated basis that it may be having the reverse effect that it's supposed to. Uh, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's that's as an interesting thing. I do know one thing. It seems like uh, I actually had a conversation with a student um, yesterday and uh, the student we were talking about actually serving size in a restaurant. And the basic idea was as well. I, I said, well, you don't have to eat all of it. And and that response was, well, I paid for all of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you pay for it, right. Yeah, yeah. It was like I have to eat for all of it if I paid for all of it. And you, and restaurants, of course, uh, I think they sometimes use serving sides as a, a, a way to uh, attract customers. Lewis, I was wondering um, about your. So we've talking about incentives, and you know, t taxing probably has lots of problems. If you're going to, if I'm going to tax sugar, uh, people are going to push against that, and quite often those taxes are regressive taxes, and they hit people who can't afford them. Um, you know, who, uh, worse than other uh, other kinds of folks. And um, so, what about the idea of giving incentives? So, the idea of encouraging the food industry to say reduce the saturated fats or sugars by giving them incentives to do that so the, instead of taxing them um uh and which they might pass on the consumer give them incentives uh sort of tax breaks based on um based on their ability to reduce the the fat and sugar in their products <laughs> so i am not a tax expert but let me tell you my initial instincts given how few taxes major corporations are currently paying. <laughs> I gotcha. I, I don't know how much 
room there is for incentives. Um, moreover, um, I don't know whether in this political environment where there seems to be pretty intense anti-corporatism of certain kinds coming from both the left and the right. Um, you know, I think that even if people think it will advance the public health, there are many people who might also resist it based on the fact that it's a tax break for a major corporation. Well, we could go on much longer. Lewis, this has been really fascinating and exactly what we're hoping we can accomplish through this podcast, which is to get people from different sides of the science policy divide talking to each other. So thank you so much, Lewis. This has really been amazing. Yes, thank you very much, Liz. I appreciate it. I, I enjoyed. Also, I, I would uh, uh, recommend anyone who's listening take a look at, at Lewis's book. Uh, Lewis, do we have any uh, comments or anything to say about that? So, uh, yeah, the title is um, Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America. It is not a, uh, a policy promoting piece, but rather a history of the idea of therapeutic choice in America and its longtime impact on health policy, law, and regulation. And it's written in a way to be of interest, not just to specialists, but to anybody uh, who um, likes a good historical story. And I hope many of you will uh, take a look at it. It becomes available uh, in early October. Yeah, and I, from what I've seen, it is a, an interesting historical story and a very enlightening um, eye-opening. Thank you. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy at american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear more about.